great to see you guys this morning. If you need uh, help finding a seat, one of our ushers can help you. I know it's a little tight in here. My name's Tony. Uh, I'm the pastor here at Wellspring. We're super excited to have you, whether this is your your first day in church in a long time or whether you've been coming here for a long time. We are glad to have you. As we all know, today is Easter, which is kind of exciting. Uh, If you want, if you are a little kid and you want to hang out with some other little kids, Miss Jeannie and uh, Claire and Clara are over there, and they would love to hang out with you. It'll be way cooler than whatever we could do in here. So they're gathering right there. If you're an adult and you're stuck with me, I want to lean into a little bit about what does it mean to be together on Easter? So we know more or less, right, Easter is the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. When I was a kid, uh, we used to go to church pretty regularly uh, in elementary school. And then I started really loving to watch wrestling on Sunday mornings. And so I complained and complained. And eventually, we stopped going on a weekly basis. But every Christmas and Easter, no matter what kind of tantrum I threw, my mom brought us to church. Right? Christmas is the day when Jesus is born. Exciting news, right? Easter is the day when we celebrate his resurrection from the dead. And I kind of want to ask the irreverent question that I asked my mom when I was in high school. It's like, so what? Like, why gather this day? When you look at the New Testament, it's pretty interesting. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that if the resurrection didn't happen, Right? If maybe it's just a fable or it's just a, uh, a metaphor about the first century and how we experience life, that this whole thing, church, Jesus, Christianity, is foolish without the reality of the resurrection. This is what he actually writes. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. That if Jesus actually wasn't physically raised from the dead, that like, eh, it's kind of pointless. He even says in verse 19, he says, we are of all people most to be pitied. Like, really, Paul? Pitied? Little extreme, isn't it? Paul, for Paul and the other authors of the scriptures, the New Testament, the resurrection, isn't just one day among many, like a highlight in the history of the world. It is of absolute importance. So what we're going to do is we're going to actually look at the story recorded in the scriptures and see what it says. Luke is the guy who writes it. He talks to all these eyewitnesses that watch what happens. He gets their story and he records it for us. And this is what he writes. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went out to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they, when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while we were still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale 
and they didn't believe him. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, I want to ask you a quick question, if you were really paying attention. Uh, so where do you see the bunnies? Did you see them? Oh, because I didn't either. So the funny thing about the Easter bunny, right? So it's in, in the ancient world, bunnies are a symbol of fertility. They're a symbol of new life because they procreate really fast, right? Uh, this sort of ancient fable ends up in Germany. Uh, and as Germans are becoming followers of Jesus, they sort of take some of these ancient ideas uh, and these symbols, and then they migrate in the 17th century to uh, Pen- what is it? What's the state? Sounds like that. Pennsylvania. And uh, hence how in the United States we have this merger of the Easter bunny with uh, the resurrection accounts, with Easter Sunday. But let's look at this story for a minute, the words that are actually in the text. I want you to imagine this scene. You've been following this guy for three years. He's your teacher. He's your rabbi. You've been looking at what does it mean to live a good life? What does it look like to follow God? Who is God anyway? What is, what is his kingdom all about? You have all this hope. You have all this expectation tied to this person because he is saying, hey, if you want to experience abundant life, follow me. If, you wanna, if you're thirsty and you want to have your soul satisfied, follow me. So you have all this hope, expectation, excitement connected to the person of Jesus. And then Rome is a big bully on the block, right? Comes in this Friday morning and he takes this person and they don't just like slap him on the wrist. They don't just take him and put him in jail for a day. They don't just say, hey, stop talking about this. They actually torture him and they humiliate him. They put him on an execution stake for everyone to see and he dies. All your hope is placed in this person, right? That's Friday, Saturday's the Sabbath. You're at home, you're probably depressed. Certainly feeling a little bit hopeless. Maybe you're feeling down. But on Sunday, after the Sabbath, you grab some spices and you begin this slow, mournful walk to the tomb. See, in the Middle East, uh, when it's hot out, bodies decompose pretty quick. And so you bring spices because you're afraid that Jesus' body is going to really smell. It's hard for us, I think, to enter into this. But try and imagine, they're not grabbing the spices. Hey, just in case Jesus happens to be dead. You know, he's probably risen, but we're just going to bring the spices just in case. That is not how they're thinking. Their Lord is dead. And they're going to the cave to bring spices so that his body does not smell. And then you arrive. And this rock is rolled away and there's an angel. And in Greek, that means messenger. There's a messenger of God to saying, Jesus has risen. And you're thinking, maybe like a bird, you know? But no, like he's risen. He's actually alive. Luke 8 tells us, or verse 8 says, they remembered his words. Now we don't know exactly how they put the pieces together. We don't know exactly like at that moment, they're like, oh, it's all clear to me. This is what happens. But eventually the early church starts to understand what happens. And this is what they say. Paul, who's a, 
converted on this road. He's trying to persecute the early church. The risen Jesus reveals himself to him on the ride to Damascus. And Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection is actually the first fruit of things to come. Now, what does this mean? All right, so imagine you're a gardener. Maybe you're a farmer. You have an apple orchard. Maybe you have avocados. Or maybe you just have this massive strawberry patch in your backyard. Right? You don't see that first apple or that first strawberry and be like, Yes! It's all here! Burn the rest! We have the strawberry. We have the apple, right? You don't do that. Instead, Paul is saying it is the first fruit, meaning we're not just here for this first strawberry. There's more to come. Paul says this is how the resurrection functions in the early church, right? It is the first fruit. It is not the only fruit. It spreads. People in this early church start to experience the life-changing power of God. The resurrection power of God in their ordinary daily lives. And they start saying, this is awesome. And they start sharing about it. And it spreads like wildfire. Within decades, people are risking their lives to talk and share about Jesus' resurrection and their life-changing experience. Right? Jesus has said to them while he was alive, hey, if you trust in me, you will experience abundant life. And they're like, it's true. Now you might wonder, if life's so great, why would they risk dying? Like milk it, right? Milk it, YOLO. You only live once. Like enjoy this abundant life. But they don't. Right? Because the first fruit is not the only fruit. And even the life they experience now is not the end. They are willing to risk their lives because they know that the life of God is going to extend beyond their physical life. They are not afraid of death because they know that there is life beyond death because Jesus was raised from the grave. But even more than this, They know that one day Jesus will come back and he will make all things new. He will bring life to our broken world. Now you might be wondering like, what is that? What do you mean? He's going to make all things new? Like, how does that connect? Let me tell you the story they're living in. The first page of the Bible, if you ever flip it open, it talks about God creating all things. God creates all things. And then we see, right, he creates this garden. You've probably heard of it. It's called Eden. Right? You have Adam and Eve. And humanity decides to go its own way and all kinds of bad things happen. I mean, all you have to do is flip open your smartphone or turn on the TV or read a real paper and realize the world is not as it should be. Something is wrong. What the resurrection is saying is not only did Jesus raise from the grave, Not only can we experience abundant life and that there's life after death, but that God will one day turn all things back to Eden, but even better. All the suffering, the evil, the injustice that we see in our world, God is going to heal. And the uh, the metaphor of the New Testament and the scriptures as a whole is there will be this huge banquet. If Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit, this huge banquet, is the final end of the harvest where we will be with God for all time, right? And they're looking forward to this day. 
if you can see, right, there's this big table over there with all this food. It's a picture of the harvest to come. Easter is not just any story in the Bible. It is not any, just any day in history. It's about the power of God to bring life to the life of Jesus' body in the tomb, to your life, to the world. Now, you might be wondering, all right, Tony, like, I live in the 21st century. Like, come on. This is obviously a fable. This is obviously a metaphor. Like, I appreciate your energy, but it's just not true, you know? I want to push back a little bit on that. Because I actually think the burden of proof is on disproving the resurrection actually happened. Let me give you just, I'll just do two arguments. This is the first. If you're going to say that it is a metaphor or a fable, you have to answer this question, I think, primarily. What we see in the New Testament is that these guys, these apostles, are painted as these guys that are falling on their face all the time. They're constantly clueless. They get to the night before Jesus' death, and they bail on him. They just bail. Right there, they save themselves, they run away, they turn tail. Within weeks, months, and years, these very people who are painted as cowards will go and die for Jesus. They will be tortured, they will be executed. And none of them says, oh, we made it up. If the resurrection didn't happen, we need to explain how they went from cowards to some of the most courageous people on the face of the earth. Now, some, some people are like, well, they had hallucinations. It's like, okay, like, let's lean into that for a second. Because Jesus appears to multiple individuals and groups of up to 500 people. Hallucinations are not contagious. You need to explain then how all of these people experience these profound life-altering encounters with the risen Jesus and are transformed and risk their lives. That doesn't happen unless Jesus is raised from the grave. Point two. One of the things that historians will look to uh, when they're trying to figure out, like, did this really happen? Is they'll look for historical oddities. So if you're going to make something up, one of the things you do is you, like, make the best case you can right? So what historians do is they look back to ancient documents and they're like, that's odd. And when they say that, they think it's probably more true, more likely to be true because it's different. Like you would never have made that up. What we see in our text today is that women are the first witnesses of the resurrection. But do you know in the first century in Israel, a woman could not be a witness in trial? For us, we're like, what? For them, A woman could not be a witness. So if you're going to write a story that is convincing, why would you put people as the first witnesses that couldn't even testify in your cultural context? It doesn't make sense. So if you're doubting the historicity, the actual physicality of Jesus' resurrection, you have to deal with these and actually a slew of other arguments. And the truth is, if we actually take seriously what is written in the text, I actually think the burden of proof is on disproving the physicality of Jesus' resurrection. All right, so you're maybe wondering. All right, so let's say it is true. What does that then mean for your life today, for my life, 
for your life. Right? In the 21st century, okay, so now what? First, I want to say this. Easter offers us hope. If you're here today and you're breathing, you know life is not always easy. Right? Life is not always simple. And yet, the power of God, the power of God is able to take someone who has suffered, been crucified, tortured, and humiliated, and bring resurrection life to that person. How much more can Jesus bring hope into your place of stuckness, your place of lostness, your anxiety and worry? today, right? If the resurrection is about the power of God to bring life, how much more can he bring hope into your present day circumstance? Second, I want to say Easter offers truth. In modern life, we're bombarded with information and it can be tricky to know like who to trust, particularly in our like postmodern kind of deconstructionist moments. Like we take truth and we just like try and pull it apart as much as we can. But if Jesus actually was physically raised from the dead, then we know that he is actually God. And then we know that the New Testament is actually a reliable witness about him. And then we have to actually figure out, okay, in a world of all these competing truth claims, maybe the New Testament actually provides us a reliable witness about what is true. Now, in our world, we approach truth much more like a buffet, right? The buffet is out there. You get to pick and choose what you want. You load it up with, you know, tons of ice cream and chocolate on top and a a cherry. And you're like, yes, you know, that's how we do truth in 21st century peninsula life. We cobble it together based on our own design and order. That's not what the New Testament says about truth, actually, about how we live life or how we follow Jesus. The New Testament actually presents more like, have you ever been and had like a fixed menu dinner? Like an astounding chef comes in and it's like, hey, I know you might think you don't like this part, but but trust me, these flavors are gonna be amazing. Right? And then you go through the first course and the second, and you're just like, oh, this is unreal. That's actually the picture that God presents of truth in the New Testament. He said, God is the chef who gives us a meal that we can feast on. It's not a buffet. He says, this is the fixed menu, but if you eat it, you will love it. He gives us ethics and truth in our life in the New Testament that say, hey, if you follow this, you will experience the abundant life that I promised. And third, Easter offers us purpose. Notice that Jesus doesn't say after the resurrection, hey, you know what? I'm alive. You know, kick back. Galilee has awesome wine. Try the red, you know? Or like, hey, the falafel and the hummus are delicious. You know, hang out, find a palm tree, relax. What's the first thing he says? Go and tell people. Right, go, go, tell them. I'm alive. Tell the other disciples. And what we see is from that first moment until now, people have gone from villages to cities, from beginning in Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth, talking about Jesus' resurrection. 
sharing about the personal transformation they have experienced. And we've watched as this purpose has been unleashed in the world. Easter was started on a Sunday morning, but it was never meant to just be a Sunday morning experience. And the truth is, the life-giving power of God wasn't just limited to 2,000 years ago. I bet if we went through this room, we could hear story after story of people saying, I have experienced the transformative power of Jesus in my life. And today, before we enter worship, we're actually going to have five people that are going to decide to get baptized to say, you know what? I have experienced the life-giving power of the resurrection. I have experienced God moving in my life and I want to follow him. And I want to say to you, if during that process or even now, you want to follow Jesus, you want to commit your life to Jesus, you want to get baptized, you're welcome to. Aaron will be standing over there. If you have any questions, if you're like, hey, you know what? I don't know, I'm scared, I'm nervous, but I feel like God is doing something in me. I want you to go over there and chat with Aaron while these baptisms are happening. We have clothes you can change into. We have towels. We thought it through, we think. I just want to invite you, challenge you, take the risk. God will honor it. With that said, I want to introduce our first person who's going to be coming up. Uh, Ruthie, and we have a little video here to show you. Well, I want to get baptized because I know that he's worked several miracles in my life. And I have seen him work um, in wonderful ways that were so unexpected and pulled me out of different life experiences that I've had gone through. And I know, I know that there is the Lord. I know that there is somebody there watching and protecting me and my family. And one of, the, one of the things we do uh, before someone is baptized, we ask them a few questions. So, Ruthie, who is the leader of your life and your most faithful friend? Jesus. What is your response to his call to follow him? I will follow him with all of my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. Ruthie, will you resist evil uh, in your life? I will. And whenever you are tempted away from the person of Jesus, will you turn back to him with all of your heart? I will. And will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? I will. All right. Why don't you step over here? Hopefully it's warm enough. <laughs> make it in?
Ruthie, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I want you to welcome Warren. Here's a little video. I was a churchgoer as a kid, and then parents got divorced, and like I ended up without a church. And as an adult, you know, working and paying bills, sometimes you let that take over as the the main focus in life, and not necessarily paying attention to the higher power. I really want to be baptized just to give more attention to the power that God has in my life. So Warren, who is the leader of your life and your most faithful friend? Jesus. And what is your response to follow him? I will follow him with my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength. And when you run into evil... Do you promise to resist it, and when your heart is pulled in other directions, return back to Jesus with all of who you are? I will. And will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? I will. Come on over. baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to welcome Taylor up. Come on, Taylor. Well, like when we first came to Wellspring, well, like you know, I had never really gone to church like regularly. We would try, we'd go for Christmas and Easter, but never like every Sunday. Being here and going to service and the youth programs, it just made me realize that I wanted to be baptized. Like, delve further into my faith and my commitment to God and Jesus. So we got Taylor's parents up here too. Give him a wave. <laughs> Taylor, who is the leader of your life and your most faithful friend? Uh, Jesus. <laughs> and what is your response to his call to follow him? I will follow him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And will you resist evil? And when you're kind of pulled away in your own direction, will you promise to come back to the person of Jesus with all of who you are? I will. And will you seek to serve Christ in all persons? I will. Loving your neighbor as yourself? <laughs> I will. Let's <laughs> go baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Woo! 
invite Michael up? I think what brought me to this moment was just years of God working on my heart. I remember first becoming a Christian. I chose not to be baptized for a very specific reason. I just felt like I was too dirty to be clean. Five years later, I was like, oh, I'm ready. And then here I am five more years later and being like, I waited too long, man. But uh, God's done a lot of work in my heart since then and has kind of showed me that there, I should have grace for myself. I There's no such thing as a perfect Christian that I will feel, but that should hold me back from ever being baptized. So here you are today. There we go. I've got some questions for you. So who is the leader of your life and your most faithful friend? Jesus. And to Jesus' call to follow him, how do you respond? I'll follow him with my heart, my soul, and my mind. Will you resist evil? And whenever you feel kind of pulled in your own direction to go your own way, will you turn back to Jesus with all of who you are? I will. And will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? I will. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we were not able to get a video for Leilani. So do you want to, Angie is going to share something briefly. So this is Leilani's baptism statement. My name is Leilani Makaiwi. I am 12 years old. I chose to be baptized today because I know God loves me. I trust him to guide me through life and to forgive me when I miss the mark. Even though life is difficult sometimes, I know I can trust him as a loving father to pick me up whenever I fall. This gives me hope and encouragement as I embark on my journey as a new Christian. I wanted everybody to know that I love the Lord and I am committed to serving him for the rest of my life. So Leilani, just a couple of questions. Who is the leader of your life and your most faithful friend? Jesus. And when Jesus calls you, how will you respond to him? I will follow him with all my heart soul, mind, and strength. And will you resist evil? And when you feel tempted to kind of go your own way, will you turn back to Jesus with all of your heart? I will. And will you seek to serve Christ in your neighbor, loving your neighbor as yourself? I will.